Hi, welcome to On Air with Clean Air Council. I'm your host, Katie Edwards. Today, we will be delving into environmental issues post-2020 election. And with me, I have council attorneys, Robert Ruth and Logan Weldy. Robert, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us about your role at Clean Air Council? Happy to. Hi, Katie. So I'm Robert Ruth. I'm a public policy and regulatory attorney at Clean Air Council. And a lot of my work focuses on statewide policy in Pennsylvania to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and combat climate change. Great. Thanks for coming with us today. Logan, thanks for joining us as well. What is your role with Clean Air Council? Hi, Katie. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, I am also a staff attorney at the Clean Air Council, and I have been with the council since graduating from law school in 2012. I do litigation and legislative outreach. Robert and I do a lot of visits to Harrisburg, and I write legislation mostly for city of Philadelphia, but I've done a few pieces of legislation for the state as well. Thanks, guys. I'm very interested in hearing your perspectives today. I want to start with a kind of temperature check coming out of the presidential election. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have won, and that feels like a huge win for science and the environment. Yet President Trump may never accept the results. And we're dealing with a surge in COVID-19 cases. And on top of that, PA and nationwide down-ballot races show that this country is still deeply divided. How are you both feeling about the state of our union? And what are you focusing on for 2021? Uh, How am I feeling about the state of our union? It feels like a you know horrifying catastrophe has been narrowly averted. I do not believe or have confidence that the rule of law or our country's democratic institutions would have survived a second Trump term. So we have undergone an unprecedented national stress test, and there are lots of guardrails that have been dismantled along the way. So I think about how we have over 74 million fellow Americans who voted to keep this man in office with everything that we've seen over the last four years and the radical failure to manage this pandemic over the course of this year, there are over 300,000 dead Americans and counting. And he got more than 74 million votes. That is, um, that's sobering. And there's a long road ahead in terms of how we try to address the collective challenges we face from climate change to the pandemic, the economic crisis resulting from the pandemic, and widespread calls for racial justice. All of that is going to be difficult and uncertain, but at the same time, we, we've given ourselves a chance. I think the country collectively uh, can can take at least a moment for a, for a big sigh of relief. There were millions and millions of people who worked really, really hard over the past four years and, and leading up to the election in November. Voter turnout records got shattered in order to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. They got an unprecedented close to 81.3 million votes. That is reason for hope. And in Pennsylvania, where where most of my work focuses, Biden won by over 81,000 votes. Turnout was up over 2016 by over 13%. That took a monumental effort. And the Biden-Harris administration, they put together uh, pretty aggressive, robust policy plans to try and tackle those four challenges that, that I mentioned. So we don't have any time to waste to reverse the pretty extensive damage of the past four years. 
moving ahead on the critical issues that have just languished and been left unaddressed under Trump. And a lot of what the Biden-Harris administration can accomplish is going to hinge on those two Senate runoff races in Georgia taking place on January 5th. So Mitch McConnell, a majority leader, Mitch McConnell is going to cut off a lot of pathways to progress. But however those races do turn out, what I'm looking forward to in 2021 is the Biden-Harris administration working relentlessly and tirelessly, running a, a blitz, just do as much good on as many fronts as fast as possible. So that's that's what I'm looking forward to. And I, I guess I'm relieved, but have deep unease about the state of our country. Yeah, Katie, and I think the four years under Trump have taught us a lot of lessons. I am hopeful that these lessons we've learned will possibly make this country stronger. I'm fearful that the divisions may have deepened and it will take a long time to recover. I don't think it's in his playbook to admit defeat, but as you know, the Electoral College did just recently um, meet and, and voted Biden in. So we, uh, we will have that to look forward to. And as Robert alluded to, it, it was a, a nice breath of fresh air, and I was able to actually breathe more comfortably after he won. Katie, I, th I think the priority for the country will be to recover from the most devastating issue we have faced since World War II, and by that I mean COVID. We had something that essentially took all of the air out of every other topic. The discussion, especially for the first four months or so, was COVID-related and how do we address our issues in light of worldwide pandemic and something that, as Robert mentioned, has killed hundreds of thousands of people. I think we just passed the number of dead from World War II. So it, it has been difficult for all of us since last March, and the environmental movement really took a hit from COVID. For example, the plastic industry took the opportunity to claim without any scientific backing that single-use plastic items were better for stopping the spread of COVID than reusables, and that has since been proven wrong. But industry didn't miss a beat during COVID. They were able to push their agenda. Environmental groups were more sensitive, as they should have been, to the other issues surrounding this pandemic. And we are now getting back to fighting for environmental causes as we seem to be almost through this pandemic as the vaccines have started shipping just a couple of days ago. Logan, but the behavior of people across the country since the election is is another thing that weighs on my mind in terms of the state the state of our union and what next year is going to look like. We all anticipated Trump being unable to accept results that weren't favorable to him. We know that he lies constantly. So him disputing and making up claims about the election and the integrity of the election results was not surprising, but the scale at which you've seen legal challenges brought in states across the country and just an absolute willingness to peddle conspiracy theories and fabrications and have them systematically become part of one political party's messaging that is influencing the beliefs of, of millions of people nationwide. They are calling for investigations and election audits and litigation to clear up confusion and anger that many millions are feeling, they say, but they are the ones directly stoking that anger and confusion based on nothing. And so it's just, it's really been remarkable in a, in a pretty devastating and bad way to see how that has happened since the election. 
and all I think with the intent at least to try and hamper and cripple the incoming Biden-Harris administration and the legitimacy of it in the eyes of millions of our fellow Americans. So while we're talking about COVID-19, a lot of people saw the presidential election as a referendum on President Trump's response to the virus, specifically his refusal to accept some pretty fundamental scientific facts about the virus. What role did science play in this election? Logan, what do you think? Science really took a beating by Trump, his administration, and his supporters. But the fact is, you can't win against an immovable force. Science will always win at the end because it's an unrelenting and uncaring force. You can only deny certain things for so long. And many Trump supporters learned this lesson with the virus, unfortunately. We saw many in his administration suffer also as he held super spreader event after super spreader event. I understand that scientists are hesitant to jump into the political fray, but it is essential that they be more vocal on issues like this. For the first half of 2020, we saw a huge decline in carbon dioxide emissions, and they are stating that it is larger than the crisis in 2008, the oil crisis from 79, and even World War II. So I think that this year will help scientists show that humans are causing climate change. Not that we needed any more evidence at all to show that human activity is what's driving climate change. But if anybody wanted another stark reminder, look at the data from this year. (laughs) Yeah. So I do see scientists as being potential champions here, but I understand their hesitancy. In order to defeat the right-wing disinformation campaign, which is exactly the same as, as I mentioned, the cigarettes and climate disruption, we need trusted representatives from this scientific community to speak up and be heard. Robert, what are your thoughts on this attack on science? Well, we're going to have a president-elect Joe Biden and a vice president-elect Kamala Harris, and they won despite the close margin in a lot of swing states like Pennsylvania. They won by over 7 million votes nationwide, so I'd like to believe that science won the day with the majority of voters. Biden consistently used his belief in and reliance on science and data to inform his policy proposals. He used that as a clear contrast with Trump and the hyperbolic right-wing worldview that Trump embraces, you know, that's just shaped by propaganda and self-interest. And so I, I still keep coming back to the fact that that he garnered over 74 million votes as someone who is proudly, openly ignorant and who embraced ludicrous conspiracy theories about the science behind both climate change and COVID-19. It's like he's given a permission structure for millions of people to act out in really ugly ways. I think that, broadly speaking, science survived in this election. Uh, I'm concerned about long-term consequences of having science and objective reality become partisan in a hyper-polarized world. So hopefully the, the approaches, the policy approaches over the next four years, which seem like they will be guided by science, will in fact result in some concrete and material improvements in people's lives, a recovery from the pandemic that is equitable and sees the campaign expression as build back better. If his policies are guided by science and people can see their lives improving as a result, maybe I'm being naive, but that might change some people's minds in the long run. 
Robert, I'm glad you brought up climate change. There is a clear connection between our national response to COVID-19 and our response to climate change, especially when it comes to accepting the science and building the political consensus to take meaningful action. Logan, can you talk a little bit more about this connection? Yeah, I, I think... Trump had a very good playbook. It was a evil playbook. And it was just deny, deny, and confuse, and throw out a lot of stuff to wear people down. And someone from his administration even stated that from the beginning. And we saw Kellyanne Conway, one of the first interviews I remember seeing, she said alternative facts. And I think that that was just what they wanted was to push alternative facts. And, and they knew they had news outlets that really had to pick up what they said. And, and I remember for a long time in the beginning, many news outlets were hesitant to say that they were wrong or even lying. Now you hear it a lot more. I have heard, you know, on NPR, they will say Trump is pushing his meritless claims of election fraud or... Yeah, Logan, I totally agree. I mean, it was a just a daily fire hose of lies and the administration just kept stumbling forward on all these different policy fronts. You were overwhelmed as a someone trying to keep up with the daily news cycle just to understand the and put into context the scale of some of the scandals we were seeing and the consequences of some of the policy rollbacks. On, on the flip side, I hope that in some sense, the Biden administration learns from that and realizes the media environment we're operating in and the, the polarized nature of the country and just tune out the noise. I think the campaign did a really good job tuning out the noise and the chatter and things that, that aren't of consequence and just move forward as fast as possible and as aggressively as possible, guided by science starting next year that seemed to work well for Trump and just being able to cause a lot of damage. Yeah. And, and doing environmental law every morning, I would wake up and I think the other attorneys at, at the council and throughout the country who do environmental law felt overwhelmed on a daily basis. You know, you'd wake up and, and there would be new news about a rollback or new news about a, a challenge to existing law. And we weren't the only ones that felt that. Immigration lawyers felt that. Civil rights attorneys felt that. So the Trump administration waged a war on American values. And that was their plan. And they executed it very well. Kept us busy. And look at what the Trump administration did to the movement and these policy rollbacks that we were talking about. Who were the real casualties? It's hard to even start this conversation without discussing the three Supreme Court justices that Trump was able to nominate. The Supreme Court, they have the last say in policy disagreements and when there is disagreement over a law and how an agency is going to interpret the law that was enacted. And it is probably the most important thing when you're voting, other than possibly the very specific issue that you care about, 
the Supreme Court should be second, if not first, uh, on everybody's list of, of importance. So I think that's probably the most important thing was that we're now going to have 30 possible years in front of us of having these three justices that the Trump administration was put into place. You know, more specific, just the assault on some simple things like ceiling fans. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't think that little things like that could be something that a president could change, but CAFE standards, which are the auto emission standards from vehicles, those were changed by Trump and his administration. We had light bulb standards. We had all of these things that in the aggregate make a huge amount of difference. And I think there were about 125 piece of regulation. Robert, you might have more information on that. but Yeah, uh, Logan, there was a New York Times article from last month that there are over 100 environmental rules that the Trump administration had reversed or was in the process of reversing. Uh, the Times has a really good comprehensive list of all of those. Yeah, and, and there were many regulations and past executive orders from past presidents that Trump has been able to overturn. And hopefully Biden will come in. He has stated from day one that he's going to overturn everything that he can from Trump. And, and I, I believe that he's going to. And you mentioned the three Supreme Court justices, each of whom is in their late 40s or early to mid 50s. They will be with us for decades, a third of the court as currently constituted. If the Biden administration is limited to trying to move good policy forward simply through a regulatory approach by using executive powers and going through executive agencies like EPA, the willingness of a historically conservative Supreme Court to uphold those rules when challenged, and they will be challenged immediately, is, is going to play a big role in just what we're able to see accomplished over the next four years really really cannot be overstated just how consequential those three justices will be for a long time now yeah and, and uh katie your your question made me remember there was something that trump said I, I think maybe even before he was elected about reducing the environmental protection agency to little tidbits i think all of us were very worried when he came in and i think he for his agenda he he really delivered there was a tremendous amount of damage, not only to the immediate environment and the world that we live in, but to regulations going forward for decades from these three justices. But one positive thing about our country and the way that it's set up is that it does take a long time for these regulations to go into effect. So once the EPA or other agencies get them out the door, which in itself takes a while, there's always court challenges and implementing it takes takes such a long time. So much of the damage that Trump and his administration has been able to inflict over the last four years will will likely be undone because so much of it is still in the process of being put through the system. So we, we haven't seen all of these rollbacks take place yet. Yeah. A number of these, like Logan mentioned, are either currently in litigation before federal courts or have been resolved and uh, rollbacks have been uh, undone because they were promulgated in such an arbitrary and capricious way. The federal courts and the federal judiciary has so far done an admirable job uh, upholding the rule of law. Katie, you mentioned who are the real casualties 
here, you know, just off the top of my head, the Trump administration weakened Obama-era fuel economy and greenhouse gas standards for cars and light trucks. They revoked California's ability to set stricter tailpipe emission standards than the federal government did. They withdrew a legal justification for an Obama-era rule that limited mercury emissions from coal power plants. They replaced the Clean Power Plan, which would have set strict limits on carbon emissions from coal and gas-fired power plants. And the communities that bear a disproportionate burden from pollution like that are low-income communities and communities of color, and seeing protective common-sense standards be rolled back, those communities are the ones that are going to feel, again, the disproportionate share of the negative impact. So it's hurting the people who have already been unjustly hurt the most by a number of systemic problems in our in our society. They're the ones who have really borne the brunt of this attack. Robert, I'm really glad you brought up environmental justice and that component. We know that low-income communities of color are seeing worse health outcomes from COVID-19, and we know that they're more often likely to suffer the effects of climate change. How can we change this moving forward? I'm trying to think how to best answer that. So I think that a presidential and incoming presidential administration that actually cares about environmental justice issues will make a world of difference. Uh, Different states are pursuing different policy approaches to try and address some of these historical inequities and the unjust uh, environmental burden that is put on EJ communities. Uh, The Department of Environmental Protection has an environmental justice advisory board that they consult with. As you advance different environmental policies, you need to ensure that EJ stakeholders aren't just consulted once the policy is written, but are brought to the table to shape the policy from the very first moment. It requires an attention to detail and a sustained, committed investment and an outreach to EJ communities to ensure that they have a hand in setting up policies in a way that will be protective and that will, again, redress some of the wrongs that have been perpetuated over, um, over our history. Logan, you probably have a better answer on this one. Yeah, Robert, I agree that There are so many years of environmental justice that we need to make up for. I don't think that it's even possible to to do in the United States. There's an area that, that I think a lot about in Louisiana called Cancer Alley, where petrochemical facilities have really just set up a home and devastated that community. Just yesterday, I read an article about endocrine disruptors that scientists are are showing that many low-income communities are just being pummeled by this aggregation of chemicals. So when you get your food in a takeout container and you sit on your couch and you have your comfy nightgown on, all of those things are filled with chemicals and all of those chemicals are made in low-income communities and they leak into their drinking water, their soil, the air that they breathe. So not only are we bombarded with chemicals just from using these products, but making those products in itself has really devastated these low-income communities. It's called siting. And these companies site their facilities in communities where they know they can buy the land cheaply. They won't have lawyers beating down their doors to comply with regulations because many people in those communities can't afford lawyers or they just don't know about the regulations that the companies are supposed to comply with. So low-income communities have really 
been the ones who have just been devastated by environmental issues, and they will continue to be. Um, I'm hopeful that the Biden administration is really going to stand up for these communities that have been so overburdened. Logan, besides the policies that the administration may or may not enact, what does this new Biden administration mean for how we as an environmental group do our work? I don't know if if the administration makes a lot of difference. Um, I, I do think that we can all breathe more easily, <laughs> both um, metaphorically and physically. But I, I think that it's easier. We have less challenges when there's a, an administration that's more friendly towards the environment. Let's say, you know, when Obama was in and he pushed the CAFE standards, we were actually fighting to make them stronger, but they were already pretty good. I think that there's always going to be a fight, no matter who the administration is led by, whether it's someone who believes in um, making good environmental policy or bad environmental policy. I think it's just, are we fighting to get a little bit more or are we fighting to the death on some of these policies? So how about the fight right here in Pennsylvania? How did the election impact environmental issues in the Commonwealth, Robert? Well, at the state level, we essentially saw the margins in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and the Pennsylvania State Senate stay largely the same. The House has been controlled by majority Republicans since 2010. The Senate, I believe, the last time the Democratic Party had control of the state Senate was all the way back in 1993. I mentioned earlier at the top that turnout was at record levels across the country, including in Pennsylvania. And so what you saw was a blue wave meet a red wave. And the state legislative districts were gerrymandered a decade ago to benefit Republicans. And those gerrymandered districts did what they were supposed to do and return a Republican majority to both chambers. You're going to continue to see the Wolf administration use its authority under state law, in particular under the Air Pollution Control Act, to advance some important policy proposals, including rules to reduce methane and volatile organic compound VOC emissions from sources in the oil and gas industry. Pennsylvania is the second largest gas producing state in the country. This will mean a great deal in Pennsylvania to tackle methane emissions from existing sources. Methane is an extremely potent greenhouse gas. And in addition, there's also a rulemaking underway to set up a carbon limits program to reduce carbon emissions from Pennsylvania power plants. And that would allow Pennsylvania to join our neighboring states in participating in what's known as the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI. RGGI. That program has been in effect for over a decade. And has done a pretty incredible job reducing carbon emissions, cutting them nearly in half in the 10 states that currently participate, while also returning over $3 billion in proceeds to those states to be reinvested to further eliminate air pollution. So those two big picture regulatory efforts will continue to move forward next year in Pennsylvania. You will continue to see attacks from the uh, state legislature and fossil fuel interests in Pennsylvania to try and prevent those from moving forward. Having a Biden administration in office could potentially change some of the calculus at the state level in terms of where fights are happening on the environmental front. The Wolf administration will have a potential ally and partner in the White House rather than someone who is proudly 
ignorant in denying science. So the status quo is likely to remain in Pennsylvania, but that status quo has seen over this past year some some important policy proposals move forward. And now we'll have a partner who's who's willing to listen in the White House. Yeah, and Robert, that's a great point. And Pennsylvania will be pretty much the same as Robert just said, it's status quo. And and that's the best term, I think, for it. But there are so many levers that the federal government can pull to influence what a state does on these types of things. And also, there's a lot of things that they can just mandate that a state does. I think, although the state probably won't move much on things like fracking or some of the other energy policy decisions that it's made, the Biden administration can make such big changes that just for example, it can keep the price of fracked gas down and that will really put a damper on the industry in Pennsylvania. And so no matter what the Republicans who do still control the state house and Senate do, there will be a lot of federal moves that will hopefully benefit the environment over the next four years. Talking about those moves, what do you see as the Biden administration's top priorities? Can we expect anything coming down the pike? I think the Biden administration rejoining the Paris Climate Accord would be a big move, even if it doesn't change our greenhouse gas trajectory that much. It just signals to the world that we are part of the movement and at the table, which will likely bring other countries more willingly to the table to participate. So I think from a global perspective, that's one of the bigger ones. Some of the smaller ones, which, as I mentioned earlier, do help in the aggregate, things like keeping the Obama era cafe standards and the other efficiency standards really will help a lot. And the market isn't a purely free market. It moves where the subsidies move. And so if the Biden administration can help renewable energy, solar, wind and hydro energy, I think that will really put pressure on Pennsylvania and some other states that put a lot of energy into the grid on changing their energy policies. I believe the campaign has framed its approach around tackling four huge challenges we face. And I I think I mentioned them at the top, climate change, the pandemic, the economic crisis, and calls for racial justice. And on the climate change front, the Biden campaign over the course of the past two years released a multi-trillion dollar climate plan that makes historic investments in seeking to reduce emissions from the electricity sector to net zero by 2035 and net zero economy-wide by mid-century or earlier, which is consistent with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's IPCC, their 2018 report. They've also embraced a plan to help coal workers and communities that have been historically reliant on fossil fuel infrastructure to have a just transition and to see some job growth that will be created from advancing a clean energy economy. And that transition has been ongoing and will happen inevitably. So the alternative approach that we've seen from ideological opponents hasn't been to offer superior solutions for those communities. It's simply to bury their heads in the sand and do nothing and watch this transition happen without any resources. A lot of what the Biden administration will be able to accomplish, not just next year, but over the next four years, is going to hinge on the two Senate runoff races that will be taking place in Georgia on January 5th. That is the final day to vote in in those two runoff races, which is happens to be three weeks from today when we're recording. 
I think another huge thing that we're going to see, and luckily, <laughs> for many reasons, Biden is at the helm. We're going to see a dramatic change in our transportation sector. Electric vehicles are here and the technology is available for everyone to afford now. And we've seen many countries, I think there's more than five countries now that have mandated the phase out of fossil fuel driven vehicles and even banned diesel trucks from coming into some of their large cities like London and Paris. So the infrastructure that these electric vehicles will require is really in the infancy now. And luckily, we have an administration, I believe, that really gets that we're seeing a revolution in our transportation sector. And electric vehicles are going to be a huge part of staving off some of the worst effects of climate change. The transportation sector is the leading greenhouse gas emitter in the world Something that I'm so hopeful to see over the next four years will be a revolution in our transportation sector. Yeah, even with some pretty significant developments in terms of fuel economy standards for internal combustion engine vehicles. Yeah, like Logan said, the transportation sector, it is the leading sector for greenhouse gas emissions now nationwide, worldwide, and it's growing. So in order to meet the goals that we need to meet in order to avoid the most devastating impacts of climate change, net zero emissions, you're going to have to decarbonize the electric sector, and then you're going to have to start electrifying everything, including on the vehicle front. And there's going to be a whole host of policy changes that need to be implemented to see that carry out on the infrastructure side. You can think of it as exciting opportunities ahead. Robert, where does Pennsylvania stand in terms of TCI, the Transportation Climate Initiative? So the Transportation and Climate Initiative, it is a similar cap and invest framework to REGI, which I mentioned earlier, which deals with the electric power sector power plants. And what TCI would do is have that framework set up, but suppliers of transportation fuels would have to obtain allowances Uh, essentially permits to pollute that are equivalent to the emissions you see from the combustion of their fuels. And so that is a program that many of the Reggie states, including Virginia and Pennsylvania, have uh, been negotiating amongst themselves over the last year plus. And the pandemic delayed the timeline for, for moving forward with TCI. There was supposed to be a a memorandum of understanding, an MOU that came out in the spring that now has been pushed to possibly sometime this month or early next year. We will see a final agreement come together from the states that have been negotiating this on a model rule. And then each of those states would have to go through either adopting new statutes, new laws through the legislature, or go through the regulatory process. However, each state's constitutions lays that process out. And they're looking to have an effective implementation date for TCI in 2022. Now, as for Pennsylvania, they have been at the table. The DEP secretary in public comments has said that they are interested in remaining at the table, trying to shape the program. But... There has been no firm commitment either from DEP Secretary or Governor Wolf. They are waiting to see what the final MOU and model rule looks like. 
Pennsylvania is relatively unique among our other neighboring states in terms of the number of rural EJ communities here in the Commonwealth. And my sense is that they are cautiously approaching the TCI discussions with interest in reducing emissions, but at the same time acknowledging the the challenges that would come along with adopting a program like that, given that opponents, not from a policy perspective, but politically speaking, opponents have been quick to call this the TCI program a gas tax, which is inaccurate, but nonetheless is enough to scare some people into opposing something that from a climate change perspective is is a pretty useful model to have. So I think it is to be determined. Well, to wrap it up, I want us to talk a little bit about human activity and making a difference. This year, Clean Air Council founded a new 501c4, the Clean Air Action Fund, and it's allowed us to get a little bit more involved in the election and holding elected officials accountable. Can you talk about the fund and what you hope it will accomplish? So Clean Air Action Fund, our new 501c4 sister organization to Clean Air Council, well, let me step back. A 501c4 is another type of nonprofit organization allowed under federal tax law, and it can engage in some activities that, as a 501c3, Clean Air Council could not. So the Clean Air Action Fund is able to engage in unlimited lobbying efforts in support of state and federal policies. We can do that to a limited extent as the Clean Air Council. Uh, We can also get directly involved in electioneering, in working to endorse and support particular candidates or political parties for office. So Clean Air Action Fund, we did some activities around the 2020 general elections. It was exciting. It's something, you know, Clean Air Council has been around since 1967. And it's the first time we've been able to engage in some of these activities and, and use some of these tools in a toolkit. Robert, Logan, thank you so much for recording with us today and talking about all these critically important issues. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, Katie, thanks for having us. This was really fun. I try and say it every time I publicly speak, especially when I'm at schools, the legislative process is important for everyone to get involved in and understand, but most people don't have the time. But one thing that you can do as an individual is contact your legislator. You should have all of your reps in your phone. So what I do is I just have representatives and then I put all of the, you know, my state my local federal representatives in my phone and I call them if there's a piece of legislation that I hear about and I want them to vote a certain way on, I will call them their office and tell them how I feel. If they receive just a few phone calls or emails about certain things, it does really sway them when they hear from their constituents. So just getting a couple of phone calls really makes a big difference. So I just want to encourage everyone, your individual actions can make a big difference. Yeah, Katie, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for inviting us on. We as a country have given ourselves a chance because of historic voter turnout, because of all of the hard work that people and organizations have done over the past four years. Donald Trump is going to be a one-term president and setting aside the scale of the challenges we face for just a moment, that is undeniably good news. So we have a lot of work to do. We've given ourselves a chance to try and tackle these challenges. And so I'm really looking forward to 2021 for so many reasons. But um, 
yeah, it's it's just I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. This has been great. And thank you to our listeners. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider becoming a member of the Clean Air Council. You can do that by visiting cleanair.org. Also give us a follow on social media at Clean Air Council. Thanks. Thanks.